you're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. And we're here to discuss episode nine of season two, Legacy. And of course, as I can't do this myself, I have my own group of delinquents. We have Mark. Hey, 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 or <laughs> Nathan. Hey, everybody. And you know, the more I've learned about Mark in the last week, I think delinquent, I think that fits, sir. <laughs> or is an understatement. It's an understatement, too. And Barrent. Hey, everybody. You know, I don't have a delinquent laugh. I just usually let my actions fill that space. <laughs> so what we have is episode nine, which we were discussing before we started this recording. And we think this is probably the halfway point of season two. And I think maybe at the end of the episode, we'll kind of take a look back and see how the first half of season two has has sat with us all. But until then, why don't we discuss what we thought of this episode? And Barrett, why don't you kick us off? You know, it's very hard to call an episode a bad episode. So I'm not going to say it's a bad episode because they put a lot of work into it. The visuals are stunning. There's always something good about an episode. But I really had some issues with this episode. And this was the first time my son actually didn't watch the whole thing with me. And we've been watching since The Clone Wars, episode one. We saw The Clone Wars movie in the theater. And this was the first time he didn't want to watch the whole episode through. So I, I think that's pretty interesting. So I'm really interested to hear how you guys feel about this episode. Nathan, tell us what you thought. I think I am probably going to be the lone dissenter of the group on this one. The first time I watched this episode, when it got to the end, I was like, that's it? It was very, very underwhelming to me because I felt like we had built up with the whole cliffhanger of last week that this was going to be this big, bombastic episode and we have the revelation of what happened to the Bridgers and I expected that to be this big, bombastic thing that wasn't just going to be handled in, say, one episode. And it just kind of ended in on a very down note and I did not see that coming. I went back, though, and rewatched it with my wife just a little bit before we recorded this. And knowing what was coming, knowing the tone of it, I appreciated it a lot more, liked it a lot more. And I got to say, I think this really is a bold episode. They made some pretty unusual, going against the grain kind of choices when they told the story this way and gave us these results of certain things that we've seen before. So it's not my favorite of the season, but honestly... It may be vying for it, which is not something I would have said the first time that I watched it. This absolutely begs a second viewing to truly appreciate the episode. Hmm. Very interesting, sir. And Mark, what are your thoughts? Man, on this one, I am really conflicted. The first time through, I was so bored, I fell asleep multiple times. Uh, my son actually, thankfully, 
kept waking me up, but I didn't remember over half of it. Uh, and then when I watched it before we did this recording, you know, there was a lot more going on to it. Gives it a little more, you know, like Nathan said, learning the, the background and the way they did it. It was a bold move, but I was very underwhelmed all the way through. And I think that's going to be the run of the mill when you have a bunch of episodes like the last few we've had. You know, they were really good episodes, but I think I, I'm going to have to give it another watch, though, like Nate said, knowing what we know afterwards, because I didn't. I fell asleep halfway through it. I was that bored by that point. There was a lot of little things that I picked up on the second watch, but I do think it, it has to be one you have to watch more than once because by the time you get to the ending, there were so many more things that I had fallen asleep for because I was just so bored at the beginning of it that, you know, I, I think there's some merit there. And, and like Baron said, you know, a lot of hard work goes into every one of these episodes and there are always parts, you know, that are the highs and the lows. And that's my outlook when it comes to everything Star Wars. There's good and bad in every single aspect. Well, I think I'm kind of falling in the middle on this one, guys. I, too, like Nathan, expected something really grandiose kind of to end the first half of the season on. I mean, a lot of things built up to this episode. We had the Empire finding the rebels hiding on Gorel. We were promised maybe some resolution or approaching a resolution, some more information about the fate of the Bridgers. We get a lot of that, but I'm not entirely sure I like how it was handled. I think they missed opportunities here, and we'll get into the specifics as we talk more in depth about the episode. However, being the psychologist, there are some moments there, especially between Ezra and Kanan, that I feel are as good character moments as we've gotten in this series. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of points that I'm like, it felt really really genuine so those i liked i think genuine is a good term for this this episode it dealt with what's really a dark topic you know the death of parents not just essentially loss once for ezra but loss twice and i honestly think we may be seeing the potential for more psychological issues with ezra later just because if they really did die during the prison outbreak and they're saying that they're dead rebels recon said the same thing they're dead they're gone if they were inspired to do the outbreak by ezra's message at some point i would imagine we're going to see ezra feeling responsible and there are so many different levels of this. And we know that there's a lot of things psychologically that kids feel responsible for that they have nothing to do with. Parents get divorced when the kids are young. They think it's their fault because that's the way they, they perceive the world around them. They really went to a dark place, but did it in a way that felt incredibly genuine. True to life, not everything's going to turn out happy, but there's an emotional way of sort of getting through things, of coping with things. They got away from the traditional Star Wars concept of, you know, the, the searching for the lost parents and that sort of thing. And I know we've talked so many times on this show about how the dynamic they go for in the Ghost Crew is a family dynamic. And it's always felt like everybody had a role to fit within the family. That I'll agree with, absolutely. But until this episode, I'm not sure I realized that it never really felt like a family. It felt like the archetypes of a family. This episode, these characters felt like family, and they had earned that over the span of a season and a half. There was never a moment here where they were talking about family or even Ezra out of nowhere, kind of, or not out of nowhere, but just flat out saying, you know, I'm so glad that you have been here for me and so on. You've been here for me all this time. And Kanan's response to that, which is ironic because we just recorded about the Kanan comic series for Beyond the Films, none of those moments felt forced. Every single one of them felt like, wow, that's real. I mean, I really felt myself sometimes getting choked up for Ezra. Genuine is exactly what I'd use to describe this episode. 
it makes sense too. I mean, that was one of the moments that I was like, oh my God. I mean, to think that Ezra's message is the one that initiated him. I mean, that guilt later is going to play well. And I think that's part of where, when I watched it the first time, I was kind of like more bored because it feels like this is one of those episodes that it's the rock in the pond. You know, if you're really close to it, it doesn't seem like much, but if you're away from it, you're going to start seeing the ripples. And I think as the season plays out, moving into season two, you know, the other half and moving even into season three, I think this will still have some ramifications for the characters all the way around. I completely agree. Ezra's going to be dealing with these issues for a while. I mean, we've always said that Ezra is, you know, has some psychological issues. He has abandonment issues. It took him a long time to sort of trust this group. Now he's got a whole new set of emotional baggage he's going to have to deal with. Not only did his message and his plan at the end of season one possibly contribute to his parents' death, but we find out that they've been alive for a while. He didn't know what happened to him, but, you know, and I think we may have even suspected that they were dead, but they've been alive and he wasn't able to save them. He wasn't able, despite everything he's learning in the force, all his involvement with the rebellion, he wasn't able to find them and to rescue them. And, well, we know what happened with Anakin when he wasn't able to save people. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some of the same sort of things go on with Ezra. I mean, we saw it in this episode when he is trying to get off Garel so that he can go to Lothal and find his parents. And he takes on a whole group of stormtroopers and then he is ready to just go nuts on two inquisitors. And I watched this with my boys and we kind of had a discussion afterwards. Was Ezra tapping the dark side there? And it's something I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on because I really think the look in his eye, the intensity, the emotion there, I I think maybe he was not walking the straight and narrow. Oh, wow. Did not think about it like that. I mean, I thought it was something that, that we might see play up more, but I didn't even think that the vision where he had it, where he saw himself jump up and stuff, and when we see it play out that he may have been tapping the dark side. But holy cow, I mean, that could easily be it. And Kanan could be just unqualified enough to see it for what it was. Yeah, he's extremely intense in the episode. And I would agree. I think he definitely was slipping towards the dark side. If never with Luke in Return of the Jedi is slipping briefly into the dark side, this absolutely was. What I find kind of interesting in terms of that, they never call it out. You know, it's like Kanan is seeing it. But he's not willing to call it out because he kind of knows he doesn't he can't know what Ezra is going through based on his experience entirely. But he's got the fact that he lost his master and then he wound up eventually with Janice Casimir, as we learn in the comic. And even then, circumstances cause them to have to part ways after a while that he is constantly sort of having to be alone himself. What gets me about this, though, is there was a moment I expected a flare of dark side or a flare of anger from Ezra that didn't happen. And I think it shows so much of how this character grew. Right there at the beginning, when he has the vision and he goes to tell Hera and Kanan, they're like, it's time to tell him. And we hearken back to gathering forces and the fact that Sibo had told Hera what he knew, what little he knew about what happened to the Bridgers. And then remember, they came back after Ezra called up the big fear knock. And Kennedy just said, you know, he needs some time for himself for a while. And it did not come up again. And here we find out that essentially to save him from the pain, the frustration and everything, they've been looking not just themselves, 
But they've gone so far as to enlist the aid of everyone, all the way up to the other rebels, that this is a personal thing for Ezra, but because Ezra is part of this family, they're willing to go to the ends of the earth or the ends of the universe to do this. And rather than him being like, why didn't you tell me? And having the anger of, you know, it's been basically a full season worth, because that was the middle of last season, without them telling him, how dare they? Instead, it's that calm, wow, thank you. We would not have seen that kind of reaction from Ezra at this point of last season at all. He's grown that much, and they handled it that well. I don't know. They, it, was, it would have been so easy to fall into those easy early patterns, and instead they give us an Ezra that's way more mature than what we started with. Well, it answers so much about it, too, because when they decide to put Kanan and Ezra and Chopper on the shuttle and let them go and Ezra wants to stay and Hera's like, no, you need to go. I was like, man, you know, you guys are really ballsy putting it all on the line. But you're right. When she points out that they were always looking and the fact that they did have other people in the rebellion all the way up to even Bale or Ghana, you know, tells you how much they're willing to risk everything for Ezra because of how much it means to him. And that was something that when I watched it the first time didn't really click for me until, especially once you pointed that out, I was like, oh yeah. Because I did notice, I was like, let's get a weird that like, you know, the Empire just showed up and they're all running, but hey, let's just, you know, throw everything and letting these two go away so Ezra can look for his parents. But that, in that context, as you put it, Nate, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I kind of got the vibe that they were lying, that they weren't telling Ezra the truth. Cold, How so? Man. Well, after they explain it to her, or, they, you know, Hera explains it to him, to Ezra, and then she kind of has this look on her face. And then he's like, I forgive you or whatever. She's like, Ugh. it's almost like they were lying because when they finally get the clue to where they're going, all it is is Ezra looking at a list. They didn't have to go through all these chains of prisons and all this other network, what they did. All he had to do was look at a list with the force. And by the way, since when can the force scroll a screen control technology? But I guess we'll get into that. I thought that they weren't telling the truth. Well, let's clarify, though, it's not that here's all these imperial prisoners at these thousands of different prisons go through the list of the prisoners. It's the prisoners based on that recent break, and they're correlating the idea that why would he have the vision unless that prison break may have something to do with it, and that's what narrowed it down enough. It's not like he could have just – he wasn't going to go through thousands upon thousands upon thousands of prisoners on a list. The force was pushing him to this moment and that prison break. Barrett, now you say that Hera was lying to him, and I take it a little differently. I think what Hera and Kanan were doing are much like many parents do for their children. Sometimes they keep the harsher truths from them to protect them, to shelter them. And I, I know that we've talked about it before, but Hera is very maternal toward Ezra. And I think she decided to try to spare him the pain until they had something concrete. As a parent, and, and Barrett, I mean, you're a parent as well. This is something that we do. I always say that I didn't realize I became a good parent until I realized when it was the appropriate time to lie to my children. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not even lying. It's you know what? There's a time to tell you something and that there's a time not to. Well, all parents lie to their children to protect them. I mean, they tell people, tell kids that they're Santa Claus and that's a lie. You know, so they lie to their kids. And I think that's what Hera was doing. So I think you're proving my point. Man, I saw Santa Claus down at JCPenney's just today, man. He's there. He's there. There were two things oh, that kind of jumped out to me. One of them. When that scene happened, when Kanan, you know, he talks about the force technique and he's, you know, helping or aiding Ezra, 
in the background, I don't know what room they were on during that scene, but in the background above the doorway, there was like 28 stormtrooper helmets stenciled on the wall. And me and my son are like, what's with the helmets? We're like, we're like, whose room are they in? Like, what's the significance? Like that jumped out to us. And the other one was about the vision itself. When Ezra has the vision, it's during a dream. And, and it was very distinct because he was literally dreaming and then dreaming about having a vision in the dream. And I was wondering if that was something that was done specifically because he was already in a dream state. They could have done all that stuff and kept it a dream state, but it was like he was there at the place and then bam, he's having a forced vision in a dream. It was very odd. Do you guys think that was on purpose? It was designed to be sort of ethereal feeling. And I think part of it's the way that this series has done visions. They've tended to do the visions where it's just kind of the quick flashes of things. And in this case, he kind of needed the whole focus on the Lothcat, the albino Lothcat, to make that somehow stand out in his mind as that's the key to all the other things that he's seeing. I think they were going for more of a layered thing that someone could see, even a kid could watch and sort of get the connection without having to have a lot of it explained. Barrett, to what you were saying about the idea of Hera lying, I think that to an extent you're right, to an extent Jonathan's right, because it's that fine line between a lie of omission versus a lie of commission. I doubt there was ever a point where she said, well, we don't know anything about your parents. We're not looking for your parents. But not telling him that they were looking is that lie of omission. It's hiding it. Not necessarily always a bad thing. I mean, it's something that parents do. But that's what I'm talking about when I talk about how far Ezra has come. Because I'm not sure that Ezra, when we met him, would really have had a differentiation between the two. That he would have seen a lie of omission as a lie of commission and been just as angry that they didn't tell him something until they had something as he would have been if they had flat out lied to him to his face about having no info, not looking. So again, it's a fine line, but I think you're both kind of coming at the issue from different directions, but it's the same truth, right? It's that same aspect of parenting, the same aspect of Ezra being more mature. It is, but in the Star Wars universe, when you hold things back from a Jedi, they go to the dark side. So Kanan knows that, and that's what happened to Anakin. You know, the Jedi Council were hiding things from him. He had to find things out. And He's already tapping into the dark side. I don't think this is a good way to go about it. They should just be open and be honest. It's not a fait accompli, though. I mean, they hid Vader being Luke's father, and they hid Leia being his sister, and Luke eventually turned out okay, although we don't know where the hell he is in Force Awakens. Yet. So, the other thing that's going on is, unbeknownst to the Rebels, we have a meeting of the minds. And I think this might be the first time we see Constantine, the two new Inquisitors, and Agent Callus all together planning to try to crush this little Rebel group. And I kind of like it because, man, Constantine kind of stood up to the fifth brother. I I'm just like, holy cow, why doesn't he just stab you? Isn't this the start right now of the disrespect of the Force? I mean, we saw it in Episode 4 with Vader, how they kind of treated Vader with the lost religion, you know. And this is the start. And why not talk smack to these people? These Inquisitors aren't Sith. They can't even handle a couple Jedis in a Padawan. They're clearly not Sith. So I think this is the start of the Imperial officers disrespecting the Force. Well, there's a pecking order at work there, too. You notice the seventh sister, she's like chopping at the bit for power. She's almost mocking everyone in a power above her to everyone else. It's like if she can knock you down a peg, she'll climb the ladder right in front of you. But they're talking about her, too. Every mission that the fifth brother has been on, the seventh sister has been on. His failure is her failure. Yeah. And yet they're still jabbing at each other left and right. I mean, I think that that, like you said, I think this is the start of it. 
The only thing that could have made them talking about their failures funnier is if one of them had referred to some kind of grievous error. You know what I'm saying? Eh? No, but I, I, I like the fact that this is a seed because the plan that they have and what we're going to see throughout the rest of the episode, this idea that now that they know that they're on Gorilla, like it's not this immediate bombarding or anything like that. It's not what we would have expected from last week, that it would have been just this all out assault and this balls to the wall battle for the entire episode or anything like that. It's much more of just a movement of forces, movement of the pieces on the chessboard for the most part, as you get all these ships that had come to Lothal thanks to what happened back with Siege of Lothal. They're now moving and now they are over basically Gorel, which has been their sort of temporary base. We keep talking about how they're starting their missions on Gorill over and over and over again for the last few episodes. It's moving the pieces there. But in Rebels Recon, they actually call it out that this is a seed of something that's actually affecting the films. Because in the films, in the original trilogy, what do we have? Rebel bases on Yavin, on Hoth. And when we see them massing at Sullust, they're not on the surface of Sullust. They're in space above it. And there's this question, well, why do the Rebels just constantly go to these planets that are uninhabited? And yet here, they were based out of Lothal. Then they're based out of Gorel. These are planets with their own civilizations. This is supposed to be the lesson that they learn that causes them to constantly start moving to these uninhabited worlds. That their presence is inflicting a cost upon the people of that planet, whether they intend it or not. We saw it with Tarkintown, and now the Empire's come to Gorel to subjugate them just like they did to Lothal. It's this very subtle seed that gets lost amidst all the other stuff happening in the episode. But we've got a film link here. But now we talked about this a couple episodes ago, that this is not really the same group, uh, the same division of rebels that we see going to Yavin and going to Hoth, that this is Sato's group. Well, that was maybe Dadana and Riken's group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But see, the, the cool thing about it, though, is that it does show that the rebellion as a whole is looking for collateral damage. And one of the seeds, like Nathan talks about, Kanan and Hera talking, and Kanan's like, maybe you're just being picky. And Kanan's like, I have to be. And that, to me, when I was watching, I had just seen the Rebels recon and then watched it again and was like, oh, that's pretty slick. Now, I think that they probably could have done a whole episode on the Rebels trying to escape Gorel because the Empire really does kind of like a multi-stage plan. They start to pull back all their forces in Gorel because it is an Imperial-controlled city. And then they bring in the six Star Destroyers that were apparently spending all their time on Lothal to try to contain and destroy the Rebels. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. I'm not a military mind kind of guy. I mean, I like military history, but I don't tend to think in terms of the strategy and tactics. What is the benefit to the occupying force to removing their troops back before their ships come in? I would get it if the plan was for the ships to come in for a bombardment and they want to keep their troops out of the line of fire. But is it just to embolden the rebels so they come out of their holes so they can be more easy targets? Yeah, troop movement. You want them to come out. They're not going to come out if you got a Star Destroyer above it. If they are, they're going to be playing it close to this chest. You know, They'll be out there with the common folk. You're not going to recognize them because they're going to be hiding amongst everyone real warfare style. And I think there's another point to that. It's not just if they see the Star Destroyers or not. It's... If the if the rebels are kind of hiding because the troops are moving around the city, they're going to move around a little bit more freely if they don't see the troops, which is kind of what Zeb says. It's like, well, we haven't seen the Bucketheads all day, which is kind of odd, actually. Or the other thing is maybe the garrison on Gorel didn't know what the plan was from the Star Destroyers. Maybe, you know, one of the possibilities was sort of a, a saturation bombing. 
How cool was it, though, to see Star Destroyers in atmosphere? Is this the first time we've seen Star Destroyers in atmosphere? No, we've seen this going back to the first episode of Rebels, where Ezra sees the Star Destroyer, you know, cruising overhead when he's at the, I guess, the communications tower. No, they've done this before. Was that a Star Destroyer? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Although I here, those were Tie Fighters. Go ahead. Doesn't this beg the question, though? <laughs> I mean, you know, just being sort of a nitpicky sort, and you know, having just watched the Everything Wrong With videos on a lot of the Star Wars films, doesn't this beg the question of if they can do this now, why didn't they just bring the Star Destroyers down and blow the crap out of Echo Base in Empire? I mean, we're getting into sort of that realm of this is so cool that they're doing this new thing with the Star Destroyers, but there is a precedent for what we expect of them already. Well, the shield generators must have been super powerful. I guess we're just finding out that their shield capacity is now like Jabba the Hutt's door. It's just increased in strength as it did size. Huge no, power. there's there's another point here, guys. Garel, they know that the rebels don't have any ground-based weaponry. Because the thing about a Star Destroyer is, yes, it can enter into atmosphere, but it's not very maneuverable in it. Sure. So if they were to bring the Star Destroyers into the atmosphere at Hoth, they didn't know what the rebels had. Turns out the rebels had a large ion cannon. If they had come into the atmosphere and the rebels had opened up on the Star Destroyers with the ion cannon, those things would have crashed. Let me ask a question then to those of you who are playing Battlefront right now. I know Barrett is, Mark, you are. Jonathan, are you? No, sorry. I'm playing Battlefront and having read Lost Stars and playing the Jakku maps that we're going to premiere with Mark when he finally gets a first chance to play them tomorrow on the live stream and all. But seeing those Star Destroyers crash and the absolute devastation on that Jakku map in the middle of a desert, seeing these come into atmosphere kind of freaked me out a little bit because had that gone into a full-scale battle, bring down a Star Destroyer in the city. It does, the Empire doesn't even have to be the one destroying that city. If the Rebels get one Star Destroyer knocked out, a big chunk of that city is just gone. And it, it, feel, it mm. felt like it kind of upped the stakes where even if they win, they lose. Yeah, it's like the uh, Starkiller moment when he brings the Star Destroyer down. You're like, oh my God, the destruction. You know, I mentioned earlier about the stencils in the background of that one scene, but there were a lot of little things like that that jumped out to me. Like last week, I was noticing the, the way the lines were drawn had that paintbrush spray paint effect look to it. Well, one of the things jumped out is the crew is literally living in their one outfit. Like, you know, they're all sleeping in them 24-7, kind of odd. Ezra's got a lot of posters all over his room. And at this point, you know, the shipper in me is like, where? Where's Sabine's picture? Because you would think he's got to have her picture somewhere. He's got kind of a big crush. But Sabine, when Hera talks about the comm and see if the comms are working when Chopper and Kanan and them are bringing Zeb and Chopper back, Sabine's standing by it. And I was blown away by the fact that there was a Millennium Falcon and a Death Star symbol in the workstation. I was like, oh, a little Easter egg. And then the other one was when Zeb climbs the ladders, the attention to the detail on his toes. Like he literally climbs with like his big toe on the inside and the rest of his feet hang hanging out and just little things like that throughout this episode just jumped out to me. And yet we got one oddity that actually stood out to me. And I wondered if this was a psychological thing for Ezra, but you'll notice that Ezra's parents, okay, Mira Bridger and Ephraim Bridger, what they're wearing in his vision, what they're wearing in his vision at the end, what they're wearing in all the little vision slash flashbacks of the Imperial prison and what they're wearing in the holographic picture that Sabine was able to save for him in Gathering Forces that he then looks at again in this episode, they're constantly wearing the exact same thing. 
And I'm wondering, is that supposed to be something where, well, all these characters are constantly wearing the same thing. Big shock that his mom's going to be wearing the weird Padme-type hat whenever they're in prison still. Or is this a psychological thing where Ezra, because he was only seven when they were taken away, or was it eight? I forget, it's seven or eight. Because they were taken away when he was at such a young age that his only way of visualizing them is the way they appear in that picture because that is his touchstone to who his parents were and what they looked like because it doesn't seem like he carries that type of memento with him outside of that picture. What do you think? Psychological or we just don't want to spend a bunch of money and have multiple character models for these characters so sure they'll wear whatever you know in prison as they'll have everywhere else. I'm going to go with the money angle because when they showed up in the dream, I was like, is this the way force ghosts that aren't force users show up? Like they can't show up in a glowing body. So they just come in your dreams. But OK, yeah, maybe they were wearing the same clothes, but they looked a hell of a lot older to me and kind of abused. They just have really, really good laundromats. No, and, and you can actually tell. I mean, if you look at them, not only are they a little bit abused looking, but I think it's when you see them in the cell, I think it's in the vision, that first vision. I didn't catch it, but you can see it in the screenshots in the episode guide on StarWars.com. Ephraim's collar has like a chunk that's ripped out of it that's not there, I don't think, when we see the character models otherwise. I may be wrong. It may be there each time, but it seems like there's like more of a look of contentment and them being whole at the end Versus them being worn down in the cell. Which begs the question, why not different clothes if they're going to be different models? Possibly. I don't know if they're different models or not. Hmm. Maybe an overlay. The only thing I want to bring up is, as this goes on, the Imperial design flaws in their machinery. Why are you putting the tractor beam on the outside of your ship when it could clearly be destroyed? Is that why they start putting the tractor beams on the inside of the Death Star? They must. I mean, that that was a really ballsy move on Hera's part, and I'm glad you brought that up. Because when I do that in Battlefront, I blow up every time. So I'm like, wow, you really going to risk the ship? I mean, yeah, I get she's willing to throw everything into this, but that was a crazy moment. But another part of it that I really liked was when the ties disabled that one transport, it made sense because Hera told them all to angle their deflectors. And so they were angling them towards the Star Destroyer. The tie came up from behind. Oh, it was a great moment because it was like one shot and that thing just went right up it was like oh because the deflectors are pointing the opposite direction there's some things about the scene though that kind of get me scratching my head a little bit i will say that on the whole tractor beam thing i never noticed it again owing to the screenshot at starwars.com they've got a shot of the devastator pulling the tantive four in from episode four and they compare it to the relentless bringing in are trying to bring in the Liberator, which is Sato's ship in this episode. We finally get a name for the ship. And it's interesting that if you actually look at it in detail, those projectors are on the outside on the Devastator. They're teeny tiny little looking things, almost like they should be fans or something. But I'm assuming they're saying that on the Devastator, in A New Hope, those little things, those are the tractor beam projectors. We just maybe never realized it. I thought that was pretty cool. I do like the fact that the escape doesn't go as planned. It shouldn't, right? This should not be something that's as easy as, you know, one J-Type 327 Nubian and the Phantom Menace, thanks to bringing their shields back up, can somehow get through an entire freaking Trade Federation blockade. It should be hard for them to gather. Some of them should be shot down. The ghost takes some damage. I was actually kind of concerned that they were going to be stuck on the planet. And Sato almost does get captured and does wind up going. He's his faith in his new head of the Starfighter people, right? Hera 
is justified. What had me scratching my head, though, just a little, as I'm looking back at it, is this is a rebel fleet that is designed to stay in hiding. They want to strike at the Empire, get the heck out of there, and then go to ground until they're ready to do it again. So why, other than the ghost, are they painting all of their ships the same effing colors? Kind of a giveaway. <laughs> I didn't catch that. But one thing that had me scratching my head was as the Phantom was flying away and Chopper's head pops up through the top, I'm like, wait, there's another? This this shuttle, this small little shuttle has three entrances. One from the bottom, one from the back, and now one from the top. I'm like, holy cow. I was right there, Mark. I'm like, how the hell is he getting in there? Quarry is just that good. (laughs) I like what you did there. (laughs) So they do split up, and Ezra and Kanan make their way to Lothal. And it's been a while since we've seen Lothal. And I kind of like how the city's changed a bit. It looks a little bit different. It, too, is uh, seeing some abuse. Now, they make their way through the city, and they run into Savage Opress. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That wasn't Savage, was it? When I was asleep, it sounded like him. You know, it's the same voice actor as Savage Opress. It's Clancy Brown, right? But I got to be honest. Coming out of this guy's face, to me, what I was hearing in my mind was not, oh, look how similar he sounds to Savage Opress or any other time we've seen Clancy Brown. It really sounded way too much like Mieber Gaskin. Oh, really? You keep going back to that. I can't e- help it. It's what it sounded like. <laughs> it's what it sounded like. Sound like Gascon, okay? I know we passed this. But I just had to bring this up. When they left Corel and Ezra is about to fight the Inquisitors, we're, we're past that, right? Didn't they have a chance to kill Agent Callus? Yeah, they should. I mean, they, you've got that moment where Ezra just whoa, sends him flying. Ezra and then he theoretically could have killed him, yeah. I'm really surprised they didn't. That would have been the perfect way for Callus to go out. I thought Ezra would have killed him. But then you're tipping towards Ezra not just leaning towards the dark side, but possibly crossing that line. And I'm not sure they would have wanted to go there with everything else. There's a point at which Ezra becomes sort of the, ooh, is he going to the dark side, rather than the sympathetic character if they were to do that. See, I was thinking about his weapon and the fact that Ezra's weapon even is more in line with Jedi principles than what Kanan's using. I mean, he's using stun bolts in the middle of a battle. He's not killing troopers. And yet, here he was in that moment, like, he was very dark. And had Kanan not shot that blast door, dude, Kanan... Kanan saved Ezra's butt, dude. The Seventh Sister was going to dice him up. She was totally enticing him to fight, and he was like, bring it. He was Marty McFly. Nobody calls me chicken. I just, when you go back and watch that scene again, when Kanan takes that shot, you know, he eyeballs that switch. Agent Callus's head is right there. And all of a sudden, you know, and they start talking about where they're going, they're going to Lothal. And I kept thinking in my head, Agent Callus is right next to you. <laughs> and they don't take him out. And we just forget all about him. That's true. That's where you would think that at least Zeb would say, like, while we're here, take out this guy. Although we're supposed to be getting more in the, the second half of the season about the Lasats and whatnot. So it's possible we need him alive for that. I found it interesting as they're flying away. I know we're kind of a transition to Lothal, but I guess the last thing that I would note here is from just a visual, wow, that was awesome standpoint. I mean, the whole battle is staged very, very well. I mean, this is very cinematic, as I think Brock brought up a few episodes ago. But we see Kanan undock the Phantom from the ghost, from his perspective, and then sort of fall away before engaging and flying off in the other direction. I thought that was a brilliant shot, the way that it was staged. So many times we've seen the Phantom just disengage and go. To see it from the cockpit view when it's facing the ghost, I mean, it was just kind of a visual treat. I love the way that played. 
There was that shot. There was a shot over Hera's shoulder from her perspective out to the battle. And even the shot of Ezra standing in front of the door with his lightsaber held out after Kanan shoots the control panel, even that was an epic shot. And I'm pretty sure, just just so that the people behind Star Wars know this, because I think logical people know this, do they understand that a blast door is a blast door because it's supposed to be thick and stop a blast? A blast door doesn't mean shoot the control panel and it closes. I don't think that's what blast door is supposed to mean. And in Star Wars, that seems to be what it always means. It's yes, bla- it's, it's a blast door, not blast the door. <laughs> and speaking of blasting doors or robots, <laughs> when did stormtroopers start aiming at droids? Is it because they don't like Chopper? Every time we see a battle, the droids are able to walk through these. They're not being aimed at and targeted. Here, they're targeting Chopper? Maybe that's a callous thing. I mean, Chopper's done a lot of things to kind of have a bounty on his head. <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool, and this is the reason why they have to paint him when they go in Imperial places oh. and stuff, because they're trying to kill Chopper. Although, I will say well, that something that came up in the episode, actually, it must have been Stealth Strike, because it was the one that I just edited the other day. There's a joke that was made by us in the episode about how they keep painting Chopper, and he still looks so old. And Jonathan had said, well, it's just a wrap like on a car. And I wasn't entirely sure if you were trying to be serious or not, but... I, I'm re-watching season one, and when they get to the point where they need him to go undercover in Rebel Resolve, they flat out say paint. So the question was valid. Why does Chopper still look so old and kind of crapified if he's constantly getting his top painted and repainted over and over again? Just saying. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, another thing that came up, getting back to the governor, was how did he manage to survive when Ezra's parents didn't? I mean, that, I think, that gets back to what Nate was saying at the beginning about how tragic it was for Ezra and how it's going to impact him later. You know, the fact that there is somebody that was with them who managed to get out, and because of their heroics, they didn't. And that guilt's going to weigh on Ezra like nobody else. But all the time, I was just thinking, man, how did he get away? Because he's built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. What, I, what <laughs> governor it looks like that, Mr. Ryder Azadi? Well, he, this is a guy, he's a cat person, which is nice. My wife was all excited when the cat was like, <laughs> oh, because she's even more of a cat person than I am, and I'm a pretty decent-sized cat person. But I like the fact that the cat winds up being the key, not because it's just the cats leading them somewhere, which would have been kind of goofy. It would have been kind of like, hey, in this episode of The Flash, we're just going to use, somehow send one bomb through this portal, and it's going to suck all the other ones out through people's windows and crap. Flash, you disappointed me last week. It's just sort of this oddity, and then it turns out that it makes perfect sense because it's basically the pet of Ryder, who I'm assuming is probably named after Ryder Wyndham, who's a really cool guy who's also a Star Wars writer, of course. But I think that this whole thing with the cat had these, and this whole episode had a lot of great Ezra moments that felt very genuine, but a lot of times it feels like Taylor Gray's delivery and the way that we see the animation of Ezra's arms and stuff, and a lot of jerky motions, it feels like he's not a very natural character a lot of the times. But when he's basically saying, you know, well, I can track the cat, and he's like, oh, you must be really good to have got that. I put a tracker on him, Kanan. That, I think, was the single most naturally delivered line we have ever ever heard come out of Ezra Bridger's mouth and it cracked me up. That was a good one. But it didn't seem natural. Like it seemed, it seemed so effortless. Like, I don't know. It just seemed like he, I almost wonder if that was an ad lib and they had to go through and extend out that segment somehow to make it come out that way or something. 
I think it goes back to the comfort that these characters have, maybe that the writers have with these characters, because it did. It felt very natural. Another thing that felt genuine to me was later in the episode when the governor is telling Ezra the fate of his parents and we see Ezra lose it. He starts to break down. And one thing that's very, very natural to us as human beings, but something that I guess we really don't see in the Star Wars universe was what does Kanan do? He hugs him. That hit, that resonated with me. I liked seeing that. Oh, everybody gets a trophy. Come on. I don't want to see my Padawans crying. Yeah, but you, cry. but you hate Kanan anyway now, <laughs> as we you learned. Know, all that does is, you know, for the long time, I used to think Obi-Wan was the weakest Jedi in the Jedi Order. Kanan is the weakest Jedi ever to have ever Jedi'd. And I, I don't want my, I don't know. Oh my okay. gosh. I, I got a totally different thing than you did, Jonathan, on that. Okay, okay. First of all, Kanan is not a Jedi. Kanan was barely a Padawan, as we learned in the comic series. Barely. Wait, doesn't Just, Ahsoka, Ahsoka told him that he's more of a Jedi than she is? Well, that's yeah, but she we, was wrong. We discussed that. But the other thing, I'm sorry, somebody just lost their parents, and it's human nature to reach out and just need to take some comfort to connect physically with another person. It was completely realistic. It was completely believable. And it provided a depth for me of these characters that we hadn't seen before. I loved that moment. And remember, Kanan is, I mean, he was a Padawan, of course, when this all went down. He himself has dealt with his own losses. He lost Depa Bilaba. He winds up eventually spending time with Janice Kazmir and winds up having to go his separate way, supposedly because he thinks that he's protecting Kazmir by walking away. Uh, I mean, he kind of, he's dealt with loss and he's dealt with attachment and detachment. But when he finally reaches a point really where attachment and detachment become an issue at all at that sort of teen age, that's when he loses everything. He never really got that sort of teaching so much in the heavy levels of detachment. So it makes sense that he'd be someone leaning more there. But I think what this did for me, and, and it's a juxtaposition I would never have gotten had somebody not made some kind of snide comment on one of the Facebook pages the other day. And it was while I was rewatching the prequel trilogy. And I remember there was this trade paperback of the old comics for the Clone Wars called When They Were Brothers. Mm. And you've got this sense that in Phantom Menace... It's almost like a father-son relationship between Qui-Gon and Anakin in the dynamic that they create, but not really so much with Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan's just kind of there. You get to episode two, and they even call it out that it's more of a, you know, you're the closest thing I have to a father, a father-son thing. You get to episode three, and it's the, you know, you were my brother, Anakin, thing that still brings me almost to tears each time I hear that little segment. But in the Clone Wars, I'm not sure that we ever really got a lot that played up the idea of them as brothers, as friends, as close, as master and former Padawan, as fellow knights. But it never really felt, except for one or two conversations, like a conversation they have really near the end about Clovis and Padme and, you know, you remember Satine, right? Most of the time they didn't feel like brothers, and here, I don't know if Kanan is meant to be the analogy of an older brother or of a father, but this moment cemented that in such a way that I never saw with Anakin and Obi-Wan that we are supposed to believe we're close as father and son or brothers within either Clone Wars or the films. And that was striking to me because I never really would have thought of that relationship in the films as being sort of weakly constructed until seeing something this simple could blow it out of the water. 
So I know there's been a lot of discussion out there. Is it correct? Are the Bridgers dead? And as we kind of touched on a little bit earlier this episode, Rebels Recon has confirmed that Ezra's parents are dead. I mean, how do we feel about that? I mean, this this is a change. I mean, there was always that uncertainty before, but now we know they're gone. Well, that left me thinking that the dream, that was their force ghost. That I'm truly wondering, is that the way that, you know, non-Jedi, non-force using people that have never learned the trick, is that how they're communicating with the living? Because it definitely gave that feeling like they were literally talking to him one last time. And while he was remembering a moment in his life from when before the Empire came, all three of them were from the present. I find it interesting that they use this as a means to introduce this new character into the rebellion. So we basically, I mean, we spent our time expecting that, that he's going to find them. And again, going back to the idea of a bold choice to have it be that they are meeting someone who's going to be an ally, but it's not the parents because they died. And the emphasis on they were not rebels. They were not freedom fighters. They became fighters to free themselves from the prison based on what Ezra said in the transmission. But before that, they were just speaking out and he was the governor who is to some degree supporting them. And yet all the rebels, thanks to the ghost crew and thanks to their fondness for Ezra, they don't care that they weren't really rebels, that they were just basically out there speaking out, that they were that sort of ground floor but not super active in that sense. They don't care. It's not about, are these our fellow soldiers, our comrades in arms? It's about, we're doing this for Ezra. And to have it come down to, after all this effort put in for Ezra, that they're gone. I think that's an incredibly brave choice for them to have taken, and a really unexpected way to say, hey, here's this other character? We're bringing him into the fold now. Had I not seen the guy in the previews and wondered who he was, I would never have seen that coming. And since this is Clancy Brown... I think we can pretty much guarantee he will be back. I don't know, that's the storytelling approach that they took just really impressed me in how unconventional it was. So, as we stated, this is the end of the first half of season two. And I'll I'll say, I'll admit that this season hasn't been as strong for me as season one was. Yet, we've had some real high points, but we've had some real low points. What do you guys think of the first half of the season? Have you been pleased with it? Do you wish that they had gone a different direction? How's it leaving you? Man, Jonathan, the season started so strongly with Siege of Lothal. We got Vader, we got a little bit of the Emperor, we got Ahsoka, and then it kind of weaned off a little bit, kind of ramped back up again, and kind of weaning off again. You know, I go back to think about the Clone Wars, and, you know, it's kind of hard not to compare this series with the Clone Wars, especially when they're bringing in all the Clone Wars characters. What season of the Clone Wars kind of felt like this? You know, was it kind of season three? Was it the Bounty Hunter season? Which season was it? And it's kind of, I think it was kind of the Bounty Hunter season, where it was named the Bounty Hunters, but we never saw any Bounty Hunters, and the Bounty Hunters that we did see were ones that were unfamiliar to us most of the time. It kind of feels like that right now, kind of halfway through, kind of like that Bounty Hunter season of The Clone Wars. And we know that Ahsoka is going to face Vader again. We know that that's going to happen, but I just don't understand why they can make episodes that are so compelling, that are such great storytelling episodes, and then make episodes that are just kind of blah. It's like you're spending all this money. I don't under, I don't understand that. They all can't be gems, but they could all build up on each other. Kind of season one, so far, in my opinion, it was a lot better than season two, so far. 
I'm the odd one, I guess, because for me, I'm kind of like, I think season two is playing well off everything that season one had, but I think you could watch just season two and be just as amped up for every one of these episodes without that background information. You could totally miss season one, jump right into this show at season two and find it exciting. I'm finding these episodes to be really good. I mean, granted, this one, I fell asleep at the beginning of it, but when I watched it and got all the way through it, when I was you know, able to be able to watch it all the way through, I was up late when I did watch it, so that could have been part of it. But there was a lot of things in this episode. I mean, even the ones that leave me wanting still fill a very nice part of my stomach. I'm like, ooh, apple pie. I'm going to have to go with the full-throated support of this season, actually, of them. The more I thought about it, you go back to season one, and it's, aside from the shorts, it's Spark of Rebellion and 13 episodes, right? So basically, you got a 14-episode season, but in a sense, basically going up through the first half of the regular episodes, about the first six, give or take, right? And you look at the season, and season one was Droids in Distress, Fight or Flight, Rise of the Old Masters, Breaking Ranks, Out of Darkness, before it finally got into Empire Day, then Gathering Forces, and really started picking up steam. And I gotta be honest, I think the first half of this season, compared to the first half of last season is quite a bit stronger, quite a bit more compelling, and I find the characters more interesting now than when the seasons, when, when the first season would have reached right around this point. Granted, this one doesn't end us before jumping to January with the crazy end of Gathering Forces kind of thing. It's a very different sort of down note here, but I think significantly stronger this season than last, and I'm really amped up for some of the things that in Rebels Recon they pretty much confirmed are coming for the second half of the season. But let me ask you a question, Nathan. Are you jazzed for season two because Ahsoka's here? Because Vader's here? Because the Emperor? Season one, these characters had to stand on their own and entertain us. By having these Clone Wars characters who we already love come in in season two, that's a cheat. In season one, we had to get to know these people, whether we're going to like them or not. And they had to hold their own show on their own, which they did. In season two, we got all the characters that we already know and love. So I think it's kind of skewed. Force help me. I'm agreeing with Barrett. I think that there have been some really strong episodes of season two, but at the same time, we've discussed it repeatedly. There's a good component of what we're getting that is really Clone Wars 2.0, and that's not what I want. I mean, sure, nod to it, but when you've got these characters who are almost driving it sometimes, I agree with Barrett. We need these characters have proven that they can stand on their own. We got that in season one. Why are we spending so much time with these other characters who it really isn't their story? Captain Rex was on the command ship in this episode. What, what is he doing on the command ship? He was in the background on the command ship. I think that the argument that because this season has Hondo and Ahsoka and Rex and such, that it isn't able to stand on sort of that these characters can't stand on their own relative to season one is a false equivalency or a false argument. Because you look back at season one, and by this point of season one, we really didn't know the characters very well. It took us a while before the characters felt like they could stand on their own. And we did get the gimmicks back in last season. We got R2 and 3PO in the first freaking episode. Then we wound up getting Lando. Then we get Tarkin. And they need to be there to help be the tent post on some of these episodes. This season, I would argue that while some of the stuff Ahsoka has done has been great, and some of the humor from Hondo has been great... Hondo as a character, Rex being there, not as big a thing to me 
as just having Ahsoka there. And really, Vader's done virtually nothing. Ahsoka was gone in this episode. You would have expected her to be there. She was not. This season, these characters can carry the show and have at its best moments. I'm not sure that last season, even if we slice out Ahsoka and Rex and Hondo out of this season and compare it to last up to right around the end of Out of Darkness, heading into Empire Day Gathering Forces, that there really is that much of a comparison. I think this is a significantly stronger season for the crew of the Ghost. It just sucks that the Inquisitors this season aren't compelling at all. Nathan, I challenge you to name the episodes that you like the best, and every one of them will have Clone Wars characters in them. It's not fair. They're going to have to kill them off. Or, or I don't know what they're going to have to do, but if you go back... All the ones that you like are all Clone Wars characters. And I call Bull Sith on that. If we're not taking out Siege of Lothal, Lost Commanders, <laughs> bottom of the heap for me. Along with Relics of the Old Republic, I was not drawn in by the clones, really. I was kind of hoping that they would either scoot off to the background or become more compelling than they were at the time. In this season, the ones that stood out to me, you may recall, Stealth Strike, which granted has Rex, but it was focused on the humor aspect of it. This episode, as I said, may, may be vying for the strongest, even though it is strange. And Wings of the Master. They have the characters in them in a periphery sense, minus Celt Strike. But last season, it was the same kind of Tarkin showing up in some of the stronger episodes of the season. No, unequivocally no. My liking of the episodes of this season are not because of the Clone Wars 2.0 thing. If anything, it'd be nice if we had less of that. Now that Ahsoka's here, let's see something compelling with her. But no, feel free to amateur psychoanalyze if you like. But you're wrong on why I like the season. Well, and it's cool because it's got a larger universe, you know, I mean, Rebels itself as a show is able to play on that. I mean, bringing the other characters in and stuff is what we as fans that have this bigger universe. So it's kind of what we hope to see. But I like the fact that they're keeping the point of Rex and Ahsoka. They have other missions, you know, they're not always the focus. Every now and again, they'll be on a mission with these characters and they'll be directing a mission and things like that. But again, I point out, you know, Fulcrum was a character for Rebels before they realized they wanted to make Fulcrum Ahsoka. I mean, so, you know, the fact that we've got the larger universe, I can't penalize Rebels for that because that's just, that's the brilliance of the universe that we have and the brilliance of Star Wars in general is building that world. Okay, so that's what we thought of the first half of season two. What are we hoping to see in the second half? What are we looking forward to? What do we hope that we get? I'm thinking Vader and Ahsoka is going to be coming. I thinking that's going to be something they're going to get out of the way, especially with like we're talking about, you know, so many people are worried about it being the Clone Wars 2.0. They're valid concerns. I like the fact that Filoni and crew have been keeping that in mind. So I really think that that's probably going to come sooner than later. I also think the Inquisitors, I think we're going to have a big blowout fight. And I think one of the two are going to die. Honestly, I'm leaning towards it being fifth brother. He just doesn't seem to have the tchotchkes. And seventh sister seems to be a little cutthroat. Yeah, seventh sister is at Disneyland doing the Jedi training. She ain't going nowhere. And Vader, we need more Vader, okay? We need Ahsoka to die. We need a lot of things to happen. That's what I'm hoping. And I, you know, that sounds kind of bad. I'm hoping Ahsoka dies, but it has to happen. For this group of rebels to grow, there is going to have to be a martyr. And it's not going to be Bail Organa. It's not going to be Princess Leia. It has to be Ahsoka. 
And I agree with you, Mark. It's going to happen sooner or later. And it's going to be a sad day because, you know, I just bought my Ahsoka Lives t-shirt for Carmella. And I'm going to have to buy an Ahsoka Dies t-shirt. But that's what I'm looking forward to. The death of a true Jedi Master. The only Jedi Master that's out there doing anything right now and not hiding on the sidelines. And I hope that when she goes, it'll be heroic death. But that's what I'm looking forward to for the second season of season two. They need to make a shirt of that that has Ahsoka lives on the front, but on the back. And you could even make it for yourself. Take it to a T-shirt making person and have a thing on the back that just says, never mind. (laughs) So I agree with Barrett and Mark. There's going to be a squaring off between Vader and Ahsoka. And it could come after Ahsoka defeats one or maybe even both of the Inquisitors and Vader realizes he needs to involve himself directly. On the other hand, I think, Barrett, it's a good point. If they're going to grow, if the core Rebels characters are going to grow, they need a loss. And while Ezra's had this loss, I think the group needs a loss. I don't know if necessarily we should lose one of the core characters, but, you know, maybe to lose Ahsoka, maybe to lose Rex, something else that's going to really shake them. Because I I think we know they're going to season three, and I think if we look at the Star Wars formula, the second act is always the downer. It's the thing where things look hopeless, and I kind of hope that's what they do with season two, that they really take those bold moves like we saw in this episode. Oh, I could see them going with Ezra being the bold move. Could you just imagine if Ezra fell to the dark side and became Vader's secret apprentice and ends up being Kylo Ren? Well, we know that's not going to happen because it's the wrong age, but I would like to see them deal with the idea that Ezra, because of what happened to his parents, because of his perceived feelings of responsibility, because of a lot of the crap that he's been through, starts to be tempted by the dark side. That he's so consumed with grief and rage that it's drawing him. You know, I actually am kind of, now that he said that, is the age different? I mean, I guess the age is off. It would have to be off because it would make Kylo Ren basically have to be around the same age as, as Luke and Leia and, and them because they were born at almost the same time. Ezra's just a tiny bit older, I guess, than Luke and Leia by a matter of days. But, I mean, imagine, I mean, Adam Driver and Ezra look yeah, kind of similar, similar enough. Although speaking of Ezra's looks, I didn't even say it. Let me say that I'm kind of surprised that they got that much emotion in this episode out of such a relatively straightforward, bland, featureless character model that, I mean, they took the, the lines of his face and were able to really pull and, and his lips to pull off a lot of emotion. What I hope to see, keep going dark, give us some heavy things, give us a chance for the rebels to have to sort of gel together. And I, I would agree, probably give them some type of personal loss to galvanize them in some form or another. At this point, I would be surprised if it was Ahsoka to die just because it was a big deal bringing her in and I would think they would want to bring her into a season three, even at least partway. So I'm thinking maybe it would be Rex instead. But yeah, some darker angle to it, some more bombastic stuff and some more background I would very much like to see. What they have confirmed, for those who didn't watch Rebels Recon, what they have confirmed so far is that we are going to get that Sabine Mandalorian background episode that we thought Blood Sisters were going to be. We are going to get more about the Lasats, and their phrasing of it was why Zeb is the last of them or feels like he is, which suggests that 
Maybe there's more Lasats out there that we're going to meet, possibly. We are told we're going to learn a little bit more about Hera's background, what happened on Ryloth, and that we are going to see, though I don't know if it's flashbacks or real, that we're going to see Cham Syndulla, who we last saw canonically, basically, back in the Lords of the Sith novel which would be very interesting to see and whether or not they do some tying back into that. And Filoni basically said that it would be unfair, it would be cruel, I think is the word that he used, to not give us the Vader-Ahsoka confrontation of some kind by the end of this season. So that's coming at some point. It's just a question of whether they'll kind of throw us a curveball and it'll be before the season finale or where we probably expect it to be and have that be the big bombastic season finale thing, Ahsoka versus Vader, which Varent will hate because... Uh, unless she dies, because I guess she's a Clone Wars 2.0 character. <laughs> I'll, I'll hate it because it'll make Vader ineffective, among other things. So it, it's not going to go that way. But I find it interesting. So you're saying that we may get a jetpack? Ooh. One would hope, because they said we're not only going to see Mandalorian background, but we will see Mandalorians. And when they say it, they it may just be the clip they chose to use. But when they say it, they show a clip of the Night Owls from the last of the Mandalorian episodes from Clone Wars. Now, you know, that makes you wonder, are we going to learn what happened with the Maldalorians? And the fact that Cham's in there, it was immediately, I thought of the freedom fighters, not terrorists. And I was just like, man, Cham's still around? Like, he's got to be leading like five different, he's got to be his own fulcrum, you know? I'm reading Lords of the Sith right now, and that's canon, right? That's one of the canon mm -hmm. books. Cham, and I don't care, Cham die. I thought Cham dies in the book. He doesn't die in that book? I don't care if you tell me. No, no. Not, he'll, I'm sorry. I'm just shocked that you're reading a book. Yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> Thank he's you. Like, he's, like, he's like, well, now that I know the end of Dark Disciple, I don't need to read that one. We're just spoiling all kinds of novels. Yeah, I don't need to read Dark Disciple now, but Cham <laughs> is alive. I thought I could have swore he was going to be dead in that one, the way that Vader's after him. But So he's alive, so we may see him. That, But how old would he be? He would be old. Old, because <laughs> the last time we saw his face was with Mace, right? Mace helped on Ryloth, and yep. he was old then. Well, that was when, I mean, timeline-wise, that was the last time we saw him. We did see him later, later production, where he was with the Jedi Master, I'm a gonna die. Nathan, I'm reaching to you there. Yes, but that took place very Before. early in the closet. Yeah, that was a prequel to the Ryloth trilogy. Well, I think we have a lot to look forward to. And, of course, we'll be back when new episodes come out. And we will be here giving you our opinions, making our predictions, and probably disagreeing with each other even more. But I want to thank you guys for discussing this episode with me. And if I don't see you or our listeners before then, have a great rest of your holiday season and a happy new year. So until we meet again... Long live the Rebellion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit RebelsRoundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, 
Ewoks and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved.